Many of you have asked for it, and so I spent some of my paternity leave creating it, an introductory Stoicism course. The best part? I've launched it using Gumroad's pay-what-you-want model. So if you want to pay $0, you can get the course for free. That's right, free. Learn more and enroll in the course by going to understandingstoicism.com. That's understandingstoicism.com. I have used a lot of commerce platforms in the past. By far, the most robust is Shopify. No matter how complex your business needs and no matter how large your business grows, Shopify can handle it. And they do handle it for brands like Rothy's, Ruggable, Allbirds, Knox, Magnolia, Brooklinen, Glossier, and Cotton, to name a few. You may already use another e-commerce platform, and you may be super unhappy with it, but you've already put a lot of work into it, and migrating to Shopify could seem impossible. But I'm here to tell you that it is quite easy. When I migrated to Shopify back in 2022, their apps and tools meant I just had to make a few clicks and everything was ported over as if by magic. Shopify also lets you design your storefront however you like, which, from personal experience, I know isn't the case for many other commerce platforms out there. All these features and all this control can result in more sales more often. So stop leaving sales on the table, switch your business to Shopify today, and discover why millions trust Shopify as their all-in-one commerce platform to build, grow, and run their businesses. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial at shopify.com forward slash practical, all lowercase. That's one month for just $1 at shopify.com forward slash practical, shopify.com forward slash practical. Hey there, Prakaptan. Welcome back. My name is Tanner Campbell. I'm your host. This is Practical Stoicism, the podcast that tries to make, well, I guess, stoic concepts, ideas, values, etc., more accessible by making them more practical. With me today, I have David Feidler. Hi, David. How are you? Hey, it's uh, really great to speak with you. Perhaps best known for his work, Breakfast with Seneca, which I'm sure no one in this audience needs an introduction to. And we are not going to talk about Breakfast with Seneca because David has given so many interviews on Breakfast with Seneca that I am, I would be remiss in my duties to ask him all those same questions again. So instead, we're going to start talking about some things that I hope no one in this audience has really considered before because in consuming some of David's lesser known YouTube content, which is not from his channel, but from others, I came across some of his conversations on the cosmos, on beauty and order, and I think I was surprised, David, because to be honest with you, I saw you as, oh, David Feidler is a Stoic philosopher. But in truth, you are a classicist first before that, right? Can you talk a little bit about your background so people who maybe don't know the full picture could start to put one together? Sure. Well, when I was uh, very young, in my late teens, I became interested in ancient philosophy. And I started studying the Pythagoreans and Plato. And of course, when I was in my early 20s, I read Marcus Aurelius as well. But I started reading Seneca about 15 years ago. And Seneca has been a really, really wonderful resource and, you know, friend from the ancient world. But uh, I'm also very interested in other types of Greek philosophy too, like Pythagoreanism and, and Platonism and actually Stoicism took over a lot of ideas from Plato and the Pythagoreans. Well, let's just jump into it then, because again, the thing that struck me the most while watching some of this other content was discussions surrounding cosmos as being this word. That I didn't know that this is what cosmos meant, but it means beautiful order. Can you talk a little bit about where that word comes from? and how it's important to classic philosophy. And, and this is going back to Pythagoras, which I think is like 560 BC, 570 BC, somewhere in there. Correct. When I was young, I edited this book called The Pythagorean Source Book and Library, which has all these different Pythagorean writings in it and the four biographies of Pythagoras. And there's this traditional account that Pythagoras was the first person to call the universe a cosmos. And what cosmos means in Greek is beautiful order. It means beauty, and it's actually the source of our modern word cosmetic, so beautiful. And this is an incredibly important uh, idea, I believe, because beauty is a value. And 
what has happened in you know the last say like two or three centuries is that we've started to live in a double truth universe so there's a world of fact and there's a world of values and this idea of cosmos shows that that kind of split is really not so easy to make because the ancient greek philosophers believed that the physical universe itself is an embodiment of beauty or it reflects beauty and beauty is a value so this idea of separating the world of physical fact from value i think damaging to us in the modern world. So beauty in this ancient sense. Yes. If I might just elaborate on that a little bit, what happened starting like in the 1700s is people started viewing beauty as being something in the eye of the beholder or subjective. But the view of the ancient Greek philosophers and the view really of everyone up through the Renaissance and a little bit after the Renaissance was that beauty is an objective aspect of nature. So when we look at nature, say like a flower or a snowflake or the shape of a beautiful galaxy, we see this radiance of a beauty in the forms of nature. And that is exactly what they meant by beauty. It's an objective aspect of nature and it arises from harmony and proportion. And that's what the Stoics believed. Mm. The reason that this is interesting to me is because there's this really vague sense of Stoics are supposed to live in alignment with nature. And it's not, I think to most people who are first coming across Stoicism and getting a little bit deeper into it and start to hear that, oh, well, the point is developing virtue, which is this very special kind of knowledge about how to live excellently. I think that when we say let's live in alignment with nature, that's less obvious than let's try to fold ourselves into the concept of beauty. Mm -hmm. This concept of beauty in the ancient world, based on what you've said, some proportions, harmony, can you talk a little bit about what those proportions, what that harmony is? How do they conceptualize this? Well, if you study the phenomena of nature, you can see proportion in different organisms and the phenomena of nature. And maybe another way to look at this is that really ancient philosophy and science, it was all concerned with part-whole relationships. And so you can see this in the idea of the cosmos. I mean, this is a very important idea in Stoicism and other ancient philosophies is that we human beings are a part of a greater whole. So you can see that in the Stoic idea of the cosmopolis, but it's also part of the Stoic view of nature and the cosmos. So human beings are embodiments of the cosmic order. So there is this kind of proportional relationship between humans and the larger universe. And basically what harmony and proportion is, the reason that you find it in natural phenomena is because proportion is the way that nature unifies the part with the whole. And for example, that's why the different bones in your fingers allow your hand to unfold because it's based on a particular proportion. In that case, it's like the golden section, but it allows your hands to unfold and also grab something in the most elegant way. And the ancient view was that proportion and harmony, harmony means harmonia in Greek means fitting together. So proportion and harmonia and fitting together gives rise to beauty, the radiance of beauty that permeates the world, if we don't ruin it. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Just a little parenthetical there, if we don't ruin yes. it. Yeah. So, it's interesting to me that, our, so our bodies do this because they're a expression of nature, let's say. So, our bodies mm -hmm. are in that way beautiful in that they abide by these ratios or let's I'm going to use the word designed I don't really like using that term but I'm mm -hmm. going to say designed in accordance with these ratios that makes philosophy and in particular stoicism maybe more about getting our minds to do exactly the same to fall into some sort of working individual part of the whole is that right yes i think so and just as a uh, significant uh, footnote here the ancient Greek word for proportion is logos. That's amazing. Yeah, because logos has all these different meanings. And of course, that's very important 
in Stoicism. And there is a rationality at work in nature as well. So that's another way that you can, or intelligence, intelligence, rationality, and proportion are all valid translations of logos. And the Greek word analogia means through continued geometrical proportion, which is what you find in living organisms. And for example, like in the proportions of your hand and things like that. I've got to ask, you've been writing in this space for a long time. You've been studying Seneca alone for 15 years. Mm -hmm. Why do you imagine that this is the first time I, and probably a lot of my listeners, are hearing about beauty in this way? Why isn't this, I've read a lot of Stoic authors. I've never read anything specific that talks about beauty as being what people are talking about when they say nature. I almost never see the word beauty in any Stoic text that I've read by contemporaries, I should say. Right. Well, the Stoics were beauty, and there are, you know, some Stoic writings about beauty that have come down to us. And there's even a short book about it as well. But the Stoic ideas about beauty were not really original. They took their ideas about beauty from earlier philosophers. And then, of course, being Stoics, they also emphasize the idea of moral beauty as well, which is like the interior, you know, sense of beauty. But the thing that's really interesting is that, uh, as you know, philosophers uh, vehemently disagree about many topics. So but if you do. look at it, yes, they do. They're constantly in disagreement. But if you take this idea of beauty as part whole relationships based on proportion, this is an idea you find in the Pythagoreans, you find it in Plato, you find it in Aristotle, and you find it in the Stoics, and they all agree on that. So I think that is very, very significant that you have all of these different philosophers that have agreed about this idea. And that was the common view, you know, up past the Renaissance and in the Renaissance, which was a revival of ancient Greek philosophy in many ways. They revived this idea of beauty and then they used these ideas to create beautiful architecture because this idea of beauty, it's not just a theoretical philosophical idea. It's something you can see embodied in nature, but it's also something that you can use and apply to create beautiful structures like architecture as well as paintings and things like that. Now, you asked, why haven't we heard about this? Well, I mean, people have known about this for hundreds of years. And maybe the only reason people are hearing about it now is because I wrote a popular book on Stoicism and people are asking me about it now. So I get to talk about it. I mean, I'm very passionate about this. And it is a bit sad, though, that you know, such a really important idea hasn't been more widely addressed by, you know, other people, I think. When does it make the jump from being this cosmos-linked thing to being this aesthetic-linked thing? And it loses this, I mean, if I'm going to be really, let's say, not negative about it, but if I'm going to be really critical about why I think mm -hmm. this might be the first time that this is really coming to the forefront and people are talking about it more openly... I'm going to guess because talking about beauty seems less Roman Stoic than talking about behavior and order and structure. And maybe that Roman flavor of Stoicism was a seed that started to work against the better interests of Stoicism, perhaps? Mm -hmm. Well, there might be some truth to that. But for example, like in the Renaissance, they were trying to revive Greek and Roman culture. And especially in the beginning, it was Roman because they didn't know how to read Greek until the beginning of the 1400s. And there was quite a bit of interest in beauty. And there were Stoic philosophers in the Renaissance as well. And one Stoic philosopher, Leon Battista Alberti, was also a leading theorist of architecture. He was a practicing architect. And he did write about these ancient ideas of beauty, and he applied them in his works. He's like a totally overlooked Stoic philosopher who was actually very important. I'm going to write an article about him soon. But, you know, there is a difference between sort of like the Greek ethos, I suppose, and the Roman ethos. But if you go back and look at Roman architecture and look at the Pantheon, for example, which was reconstructed 
you know, by Hadrian, which would have been, I can't give you the exact date, but it would have been, you know, like right before Marcus Aurelius, actually. And that's one of the few, it's actually probably the only surviving work of Roman architecture that's complete because it was made into a church. So it survived. And that's like an incarnation of these ancient ideas of harmony and beauty. And the thing about beauty, I think that's very important is that it's just not an idea, but it's something that we can tangibly experience. And when you see something beautiful, it has an effect on your soul. And there's sort of like this idea of aesthetic arrest. So if you see something beautiful, it can just like stop you in your tracks. And that's why I think it's so important because it also, the ancient idea too, is that when we perceive beauty, especially in nature, it gives us a direct kind of link or insight into the deep underlying order of the cosmos that goes beyond human language. Because if our knowledge of the world was strictly limited to words, I think we would be living in a very sad world indeed. I think I would agree with that. It also, what I'm thinking of now is how many times I've heard people say to the Stoics and to a lot of ancients, the existence of God wasn't a question because looking at nature, it was obvious that God had to exist. In your, and maybe we're going a little bit too deep here, I, I don't know, if you can stop me if so, but do you have your own personal opinions about the Stoic conceptualization of God as universe, as organism, as sentient, as benevolent? Do you f agree with those things? How do you feel about those things in particular? Right. Well, I don't really think that the Stoics believed the universe was sentient in a sense. You can find a couple of references to that, but I don't think that was like a really widespread idea. But the idea that the universe is an embodiment of intelligence that is something that definitely the Stoics believed. And that's something that I believe as well, not really in a theistic sense, but in the sense that intelligence is a primary characteristic of the natural world, which we can see in living organisms, but we can also see it in other forms as well. For example, the way that the universe operates on a cosmic scale, say like Kepler's three laws of planetary motion. When you look at those three laws of planetary motion, you see how rational, you know, the world really is. And, you know, that rationality in the Stoic view was synonymous with intelligence. And so therefore with God, whatever that conception of God was at the time. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So another way of looking at it too, is that when people say that something is divine, what are they really saying? And I think that what they're really saying is that there's like an embodiment of supreme value and beauty is one aspect of that. So you might say to someone, oh, you know, you're divinely beautiful or something like that. And so I think that a lot of these religious beliefs and feelings have something to do with, you know, finding supreme value. And the other aspect of the sacred too is feeling at home in the world and the universe. And so when you sense the beauty in nature, you can feel that you're part of a greater whole. And I've thought about this for many years and people talk about like, well, what is the meaning of life and things like that. And I think that's phrasing the question in an incorrect way. The way I would phrase it is, what is it that makes your life feel extremely meaningful. And what I believe, you know, just based on my studies and personal experience is that people find life to be meaningful when they feel that they're part of a larger whole. And you can see that in many different ways, being part of the cosmos. And you can see it like even being people feel that their lives are meaningful, even if they're like part of a winning team in sports or in the stoic perspective, you know, life is meaningful if you realize that you're part of this universal community of the cosmopolis. And so there are all these different examples. So I think that people really find their lives to be meaningful when they feel that they're part of a larger whole and also when they can make a contribution to that.
I am speaking with David Feidler, philosopher and classicist and author of the book Breakfast with Seneca. We're going to take a quick break to hear from a few sponsors. And when we come back, we'll talk more about more things. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you in part by Prize Picks, America's number one fantasy sports app with over 3 million members. They are, without a doubt, the easiest way to play DFS. It's just you versus the numbers. You pick more than or less than on two to six player stat projections and watch the winnings roll in. With the big game right around the corner, Prize Picks is the easiest and most exciting way to turn every game changing moment into 100 times your money because with as little as four correct picks, you can turn $10 into $1,000. Offer expires post Super Bowl. With quick withdrawals, easy gameplay, and an enormous selection of player and stat types, it's no wonder Prize Picks is the number one daily fantasy sports app. I've got friends that use Prize Picks, and they absolutely swear by it. So if daily fantasy sports is your thing, you've got to give Prize Picks a try. Go to prizepicks.com forward slash practical and use the code practical for a first deposit match up to $100. That's prizepicks.com forward slash practical with code practical for a first deposit match up to $100. Prize Picks. Pick more, pick less. It's that easy. I have used a lot of commerce platforms in the past. By far, the most robust is Shopify. No matter how complex your business needs and no matter how large your business grows, Shopify can handle it. And they do handle it for brands like Rothy's, Ruggable, Allbirds, Knox, Magnolia, Brooklinen, Glossier, and Cotton, to name a few. You may already use another e-commerce platform and you may be super unhappy with it, but you've already put a lot of work into it and migrating to Shopify could seem impossible. But I'm here to tell you that it is quite easy. When I migrated to Shopify back in 2022, their apps and tools meant I just had to make a few clicks and everything was ported over as if by magic. Shopify also lets you design your storefront however you like, which from personal experience I know isn't the case for many other commerce platforms out there. All these features and all this control can result in more sales more often. So stop leaving sales on the table, switch your business to Shopify today, and discover why millions trust Shopify as their all-in-one commerce platform to build, grow, and run their businesses. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial at shopify.com forward slash practical, all lowercase. That's one month for just $1 at shopify.com forward slash practical, shopify.com forward slash practical. And we're back with David Feiler. David, we're going to jump into the weeds here. We're going to talk about God, and we're going to do that in two ways. I'm going to ask you to compare your own personal concept of what most people would refer to as God, and then to compare that to the Stoic concept of God and see where you're in alignment and see where you disagree, because I think that the conceptualization of God and Stoicism is something that is really it's so divisive, in fact, that we have people who call themselves traditional Stoics and people who call themselves modern Stoics. So it's obviously mm-hmm. a, a point of great contention. And I would love to hear someone with your background talk a little bit about that. Okay. Well, um, when I used to be a philosophy professor, sometimes my students would ask me, uh, do you believe in God? And what I would say is, well, I could perhaps answer that question, but you have to tell me what you mean by God, because even in the Western tradition alone, there are many different ideas about God. And when people talk about God today, they're usually speaking about theism, which is essentially the uh, Christian idea of God. And it's this idea that God is separate from the universe and some kind of supernatural entity that drew up a plan, a blueprint of creation, and then created the world. And that this God is also something you can have a personal relationship with. And I'm not exactly attracted to that kind of theistic idea. Now, the Greek philosophers spoke about God a lot, but the Greek philosophers never meant this modern theistic idea of God as an entity that drew up a plan for the universe. What they meant instead was basically the divine order of the cosmos, uh, so they would, you know, use this term in a sort of superlative way, but they never had this idea of 
an entity that stood apart from the universe and drew up the plan. And that's true for, for example, the Pythagoreans and, and Plato. Plato talks about God a lot, and the Stoics, they talk about God a lot. But they're not referring to this theistic idea of God, and the way that we would describe that today is pantheism. And I think that all of these terms are a bit iffy because the reality of the universe and its order and things like that, they far transcend our ability to express them in language. Because if you look at reality in a very, very deep way, it just goes beyond, you know, the limitations of words. But this idea that we're part of a cosmic order, which was and that it's beautiful and harmonious. This was more the ancient idea of God. And certainly I, I would subscribe to that because I think it's a very rational way of looking at the world and it doesn't require any you know kind of supernatural perspective. Do you find personally the division between traditional Stoicism and modern Stoicism to be, with what you've just said in mind, kind of unnecessary? Just to lead off, I do think it's pretty unnecessary because I think we're making words mean things that carry a lot of our own personal baggage with it rather than it being a real worthy point of disagreement. Right. I do agree with that. And I think one of the problems that has given rise to this is that when people hear the word God, they think about it in a modern theistic sense. And the people who write about Stoicism have not, in general, done a very good job of explaining what the ancient view was and how it's really entirely different from the Christian view of God. And I did try to explore that in my book on Seneca in the chapter on gratitude because, well, I'm not going to go into that, but if you want to understand these different ideas of God, like theism and you know pantheism, you can read about that in the Seneca book in the chapter on gratitude. And one thing that I like to do is I try to replace the word God with the term the universe when I talk about stoicism, because that gets rid of sort of like the theistic baggage and it just sort of, you know, frames it in a somewhat better way, I think, for modern readers. And the other thing too is that the Stoics identified God and nature. So if you don't like the term God, you can always replace that whenever you're reading the Stoic writings in your mind with the word nature. And the ancient Stoics would have no disagreement with that. Yeah, this is something I feel like Chris Fisher has done a really good job of trying to do, of trying to express all this in terms that are, you know, Chris was an atheist for most of his life mm -hmm. and would now call himself a Stoic rather than to call himself an atheist, whereas I call myself an atheist and a Stoic who believes in the Stoic God. And I've written a bit about how I don't think that is those two ideas are held in contest with one another. I think you can mm -hmm. be an atheist and believe in the Stoic concept of God because, as you've just sure. been saying, the Stoic concept of God is not the concept of God that I know any atheist really has an issue with. Yeah, yeah. So what I said in uh, the Seneca book in that chapter on gratitude is that I wouldn't describe myself as a theist, but I wouldn't describe myself as an atheist either. <laughs> and so you would describe yourself as a pantheist, I think, yes? If I was forced to... Backed uh, into a corner and forced to label yourself, yes. If I was backed into a corner and someone wanted to put me in a little box, that's the term I would use, but I would prefer not to use it. It is a real pain. Yeah. It is a real pain, right, that people want to do this. I remember when I decided that I wanted to, I was going to try to be a vegetarian. And everybody's like, okay, you're a vegetarian now. And then I realized in my diet that I needed meat some of the time because plant protein just didn't do it for me. And the, right. then people were like, oh, so you're not a vegetarian, you're a flexitarian. And it irritated me to a degree that I don't <laughs> know that I can accurately express that they still wanted to label me something so that they could, again, yeah. put me in a little box. But we humans have a tendency yeah. to really desire to do that, don't we? Yeah. Well, we live in a time when um, people want to put everything into reductionistic categories. And that's why certain things like trying to understand consciousness through the specialization of the brain hemispheres, for example, is so popular because it's just so contemporary to think in these very materialistic terms. And it's all very ideological. Like in the academic world, you have to really 
for the most part, believe in this kind of extremely materialistic universe and, you know, proclaim yourself to be an atheist, because if you don't, you'll be, you know, going against the grain. But I think any kind of reductionistic thought that makes like the multidimensional universe that we live in to be two-dimensional and flat, I think that's always very harmful. And I've always been against that. That reminds me of something I recently watched. There's a discussion with you and a woman whose name I cannot recall, but you talked about that the idea of symmetry was not left, right. It was left, right, and depth mm. as well, and other things. That was actually really interesting. Could you just kind of overview that real quick? Right. Well, uh, when we think about symmetry today, we think about bilateral or mirror symmetry, which I suppose the ancients would have thought of as well. But they had a totally different idea of symmetry in Greek thought and Roman thought. And it's from the Greek word symmetria, which means united by a common measure. So it means like a common proportion that links the parts together into the whole. And so like I mentioned earlier, like the finger bones of your hand, they're all linked together by the same proportion or say like a nautilus shell. So that's symmetria. It's following a common proportion. And they use this principle of uh, symmetria or symmetry in designing temples. Like for example, the Parthenon is based on a proportion of nine to eight, I believe. And that's a proportion that goes through the entire temple from the proportion of like the stylobate, which is the top level and the spacing of the columns and the front rectangle and everything like that. So it's a common proportion that goes throughout the entire structure. And they use this as well in like Renaissance art and painting because it's a way of linking the parts together into a whole, which is the way that nature itself works and that gives rise to beauty. So they were trying to emulate these principles of beauty that we find in nature. So symmetry then doesn't even mean in the original sense, let's say the original sense, doesn't even mean what it means today. That's correct. Yeah. My favorite part about what we've been talking about thus far, David, is this idea that <laughs> that virtue in stoicism is it is so poorly communicated by just not saying flatly that what this is about is becoming beautiful as nature is beautiful because i feel like that is much easier to conceptualize that if what i'm trying to do with my character and my life is to bring it into proportion with this kind of naturally occurring proportion in nature right if somebody tells me that that's what i'm trying to do I just feel like, and I don't know why it does, because it sounds even more vague, but for some reason that is less vague to me than be in alignment with nature. Because be in alignment with nature is almost kind of, it's like too cold and exacting a description of what you're trying to do. Whereas right. develop your character towards, develop yourself towards being a functional, proportionate part of the whole. Yes, yes. Somehow that's much easier for me to conceptualize. Right. I agree. And there's an emphasis in modern Stoicism to focus on rationality. So following nature is to be a rational being because the whole world is permeated by logos or rationality. And that is a correct interpretation of Stoicism. But we shouldn't forget that at the same time, this logos also means proportion and harmony which is related to beauty as well. So that is an overlooked aspect of it. And it is better in some ways or to look at ourselves as having a proportional relationship with the world and with human society, I think. I mean, we need to look at it in both ways, but it does bring a greater degree of depth to the topic, I think. Again, I am speaking with David Feidler, philosopher and classicist and author of the book Breakfast with Seneca. We're going to take another break to hear from some sponsors. And when we come back, we'll hear something about Seneca, demonizing Seneca, how David feels about that, and some more about, or for the first time, something about an event that David's participating in that I think everyone will want to attend. Stay with us. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. And we're back. David, there's a lot of conversation on the blogosphere and the internetosphere, where people just have opinions and can't help but share them. And a lot of those opinions seem to repeat this idea that Seneca, while a great writer, and I've just recently figured out also a pretty incredible playwright, he's a phony. He's really this Machiavellian dude who, you know, looks good on paper, but what he really did was he helped to plot the death of people with Nero, and he was a conspirator with Nero, and he's not this really good guy the way that we think that he is, or the way that he's trying to pass himself off as in his writings. How do you feel about that? Is there any evidence for that being the case? And if not, what's going on here? Why do so mm-hmm. many people seem to think negatively about Seneca? No, there's absolutely uh, no evidence for that. And what Seneca said is that if you don't have evidence about something, you just have to suspend your judgment. <laughs> and That sounds familiar. Yeah. So the people who are saying these kinds of things are taking a totally unstoic approach. So there are basically two different, you know, extreme perspectives on this. And one is that, you know, Seneca was really this evil person who was greedy. And the reason why he stayed connected with Nero is just, you know, so he could profit financially and things like that. And then this other view is that Seneca did want to have the best effect possible on Nero. And he found himself in this very uncomfortable situation, but he did what he could to, you know, help Nero develop morally. And that was a failure. And that, that's the view that I take. And I mean, who really knows what the case is? I, I certainly don't think that Seneca was insincere, but I, I can mention a, a couple of really extreme views that people have taken. One is that I listened to this interview with James Rahm, who wrote this uh, very lengthy biography of Seneca. And these people who write biographies of Seneca are somewhat curious in the sense that all of the historical information that we really know about Seneca to be true, you could write on like one piece of paper. So we have very, very few facts about Seneca's life that are incontrovertible. And then everything else is just speculation. And so how you can write this lengthy biography about Seneca, I don't know. But James Rahm, for example, in an interview once said that, you know, it's possible, it's just possible that Seneca helped Nero plot the murder of Nero's brother and mother. And there's absolutely no historical evidence for that. So that kind of speculation, I think, is incredibly irresponsible. And there's another writer in modern Stoicism who believes that there was nothing more than a Latin sophist who was very good at writing, but he wasn't really a Stoic and he just wanted to profit off of Nero. And then he wrote hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages about Stoic philosophy just to cover his tracks. And when I was researching my book on Seneca, I read everything available on Seneca. So you know, hundreds of articles and all the available books. And there isn't anyone in the history of Seneca scholarship who ever suggested that. It's just a very, very strange idea. And it's also riddled with misconceptions about the role of rhetoric in ancient philosophy, because 
rhetoric in ancient philosophy was not viewed in an entirely negative sense. And there were some writers who believed that rhetoric was actually essential for communicating philosophy. So just because someone was a student of rhetoric did not disqualify them from being a philosopher. Other writers believed that it was essential to be uh, skilled in rhetoric to be a real philosopher. And even Plato, who was largely negative about false rhetoric, said in one of his dialogues that to be a real rhetorician, you had to be a philosopher, and you could use that to communicate the ideas of philosophy. So how people get away with this kind of stuff that has no basis in history or scholarship, I have no idea. So I, I find this idea of demonizing Seneca to be extremely dubious because we just don't have the evidence for it. And the ancient sources that talk about Seneca would not be considered to be reliable sources today. And they don't support any of these claims that I just mentioned at all. These are things that people have just imagined in their minds. So it's very, very unstoic. It's very, very unacademic. And it's very irresponsible to make those claims without having researched these matters. Yeah, I would have to agree if that is the case that all of that is quite unacademic, quite unstoic. I would agree with yeah. that for sure. Uh, can I ask though, because maybe I hold a view that is in fact not a good view to hold uh, or an untrue one. Gosh, I'm about to embarrass myself if it is. Is there or is there not some confusion around whether or not Lucilius was a real person mm -hmm. or that Seneca was kind of using Lucilius in this Boccaccio fashion of a frame tale, and he's using him mm -hmm. as a device to tell a story, as it were. Right. Do you think that that's true, or, or do we know that Lucilius was a real person? Well, there is some evidence that he was a real person, and there's a fragment of a poem attributed to him on, uh, I think it was Mount Vesuvius, and he lived in uh, Sicily, supposedly. Now, I would say I didn't discuss this at all in my Seneca book. In retrospect, I should have included a footnote about it because about half of you know the serious Seneca scholars believe that Seneca's letters to Lucilius were kind of a literary creation, and then half don't. They believe that they were real letters. And it's also possible that they were letters, but then Seneca edited them later. And we know that this kind of thing took place because this uh, famous writer in the Renaissance, Petrarch, who was a huge fan of Seneca, published 550 letters, which were actually based on what he wrote. But, you know, he was obsessive compulsive and spent years <laughs> editing his letters before publishing them. So that's possible as well. The ancient version of editing your comment a hundred <laughs> times because you've misspelled or left out a punctuation, sure. Yes. But what we do know is that every single philosophical writing of Seneca was addressed to someone that he knew because he wanted to stress the fact that philosophy embodied person-to-person -person relationships. And no one has questioned, you know, whether those writings were actually addressed to the people that he wrote them to. And so it's the same with his, his later writings. So he addressed the letters to Lucilius, and he addressed a couple of other writings as well, like natural questions. And also, I can't remember the other one. I think it's on Providence to Lucilius. So there's this very, very scholarly sort of encyclopedia about Seneca. And the person who wrote the entry on Seneca's letters discussed this question in depth. And what he said is that the people who maintained that Seneca's letters to Lucilius were not actually real letters, that the burden of proof is upon them to show that that is true. And so, of course, it's possible that the letters you know, drew on the imagination in some sense. And all of Seneca's writings, regardless of who they were addressed to, were written for a larger public. So obviously, you can see letters. And it does seem that the letters were an introductory course to Stoicism in which 
Seneca was summarizing all of his previous writings and knowledge about Stoicism. So there are those elements. All of his writings, they were meant to be read by a larger audience. But, you know, the idea that Seneca wrote the letters to Lucilius, I think, is credible. And uh, whether it's true or not, I don't know. It doesn't have any, you know, impact on the value of the letters. But if people, you know, really want to doubt that, then the burden of proof is on them because Seneca portrays himself as writing the letters, but also this very large work called Natural Questions and the short work on Providence to Lucilius. And he does seem to have been a real person. And then that would raise the question is, is that if Lucilius was a real person, and there is some evidence for that, then how could Seneca write these things to Lucilius, you know, as like a literary exercise without causing some kind of, you know, problems for him. In not too long, you're going to be giving a talk as part of the event on Seneca, anger, fear, and sadness with the Plato's Academy Center. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to give you an opportunity here first to talk a little bit about when the event is. I can share how people can learn more about it, but specifically what you'll be talking about. Now, don't give us the whole talk. <laughs> don't give the cow away, David, but, you know, tantalize us. What are you going to be talking about? Why should people want to come and hear what you mm -hmm. have to say on, on Seneca at this event? If I'm not mistaken, I think the event is uh, August 19th. Double check that. <laughs> but uh, I'm going to be talking about Seneca as our philosopher who addressed real life issues, which makes him so valuable to people today. And uh, I think I will mention, you know, some of the people who have tried to demonize Seneca as well, because that's fun. And I just don't think that's a proper scholarly kind of activity. And then at the end of the talk, I'm going to talk about the profound influence that Seneca had on the development of the Renaissance which most people don't know about. And I think that's an aspect of Seneca and Stoic philosophy that is incredibly important today because in the ancient world, despite their very good intentions to have an impact on society, I don't believe Stoicism really did have much of an impact on the ancient world or any ancient like philosophy really did in terms of society. I just don't think that happened. The time was not really right for that. But in the Renaissance, things were different. And there's all this historical evidence that the Renaissance humanists, the early Renaissance humanists who developed the Renaissance as a kind of project, were inspired by Seneca and by Cicero, who was a Stoic, you know, inspired philosopher, to actually create the Renaissance itself. And they wanted to transform society and create a more virtuous society. And one of the ways they wanted to do this, or the primary way, is by drawing on the moral philosophy of antiquity. And what that meant for them was Seneca and Cicero. So I think that's very important today because they actually give us a model of how Stoicism and Stoic-related thought could be used to improve and transform society today. And one of the ways to do that is through education. So I'm going to talk about that. That's something I'm very passionate about. Well, I'm lucky enough to know that I'm going to be attending that talk because I'm the poor fellow that has to has to handle all the all the back end streaming for pack events that we do together. So I'm looking forward to seeing it. I will share details in the show notes of this episode so that others can go and it's by donation only, so you can go check out the link, select your donation, and attend. I'm not sure what the minimum is, but I think it, it might be pretty low. The minimum might even be zero, <laughs> but there'll be a link yeah, in the show notes, true. and uh, you can check it out and decide for yourself if you'd like to hear David speak. Yeah, and if I could just mention my websites as well. Uh, I have yes, a website called Stoic Insights, so you can find that. And then I have another one called Living Ideas Journal. So if you're interested in learning about the profound influence that uh, Stoicism had on the Renaissance, there's an article on that website called How Philosophy Changed the World. And you can find that on Living Ideas Journal. You can just Google that and other interesting articles there as well. I am also going to, I'll do it right now. I'm going to put you on the spot, David. We have a community of Stoic 
fanatics. I'm not really going to use that word. <laughs> They're not fanatics. <laughs> we, we have uh, people who are part of our Stoicism Discord. There's almost a thousand of them. And I would love to invite you into that community just so that you can have an ear to the ground of things that are going on in there. And I think in there, I will also share links to some of the other things that David has going on to include some live and in-person events, if I'm not mistaken. You're mm -hmm. planning something fairly soon. Is that true? There's a, a five-day course in Italy, in Florence, on the ideas that inspired the Renaissance. And it's followed by a one-day symposium where there'll be like scholarly papers. And we will be talking about Stoicism in the Renaissance and how Stoic philosophy and other Greek schools of philosophy influenced the Renaissance. And it's going to be an unforgettable event. I've been working on uh, organizing this for two years now, and it should be very interesting. So if people want to uh, learn about that, you can just go to Living Ideas Journal and there's a link to it. And uh, I would love to join your Discord community, but the problem I have is that in order to organize this event and prepare the presentations that I'm making and stuff like that, I'm working 12 to 14 hour days now. So I don't really have the mental bandwidth to take on too much more at the point, but maybe in the future I could do that. You guys, you heard it. I tried. I tried, but the man <laughs> is busy. And I think I think that's I think that is a fair uh, turn down to my offer. I think that's very fair. But I will still share that information uh, for David's live events, and maybe one day he will join under a pseudonym, and you'll never know it's David Feidler. <laughs> It'll be Favid Deidler, and uh, <laughs> you'll never know it's him. I'd be happy to come in at some point, and you know, if there's like a question and answer, you know. Thing. I'd be happy to do that. So Yeah, a Reddit-style AMA, that sort of thing, yeah, sure. Yeah. Okay, well, we'll look forward to that. David, thank you so much for taking the time to be here today. I know you're busy, 14-hour days. I'm now one of those hours. <laughs> Hopefully, I'm not the 15th, uh, and I really appreciate you taking the time. It's been really great uh, speaking with you, and what you've been able to accomplish with this podcast is just amazing. So you have my compliments on that, and... It's just an amazing accomplishment and it's very much needed and very valuable. Thanks, David. I appreciate that.